like even if you're not sure if this is the thing for you, what you're doing right now is the thing for you, if there isn't an alternative, something that presents itself as better, then throw yourself into this for now. It's better than better than doing nothing, right? Even if eventually you end up dropping it in favor of something else, you will have built up skills of resilience and determination and discipline, most importantly, which yeah. you will then be able to apply to that that new thing. Hello everyone, good morning, good afternoon, good evening or good night. Whatever time of day it is for you, it's good to have you here and welcome to the podcast. This podcast is all about looking at human potential, exploring high performance, what does it take to consistently push beyond limitations and do the unthinkable. We speak with people from diverse fields, whether that's free diving, sport, business, art, Whatever the context is, we speak with people that are really pushing the boundaries in their respective fields. So we're going to explore these conversations with people in an informal, in a fun way, in an exploratory way, in a challenging way. And we're going to bring these insights to you that you can apply to your own life to make your life more fulfilling and your experience in this world greater for you and for those around you. So welcome and it's good to have you here. My guest today is William Truebridge. William is an outstanding human being. I really enjoyed my conversation with William. And as you can see from his character, his demeanor, his his way of doing things, he's just such a balanced human being. And I have no doubt, no matter what William throws his hand to, he will do it exceptionally well. He's 18 freediving world records, 18, one eight, six world champion titles. He is the world's deepest man, having freedived unaided on a single breath to a depth of 102 meters, that's 334 feet. He is also the founder of Vertica Blue, the most prestigious freediving event in the world, held annually at the Dean's Blue Hole, Long Island, in Bahamas. So you would have seen that Vertica Blue on the documentary The Deepest Breath, where William's friend Stephen Keenan, you know, was the key figurehead of that documentary. And I think you know, if you haven't seen it, it's definitely worth watching because. It shines a light on Stephen, but also on the freediving world in a really positive way and gives them more perspective of the great feats that they are doing. So myself and William had a powerful conversation about freediving, what it is, you know, but ultimately how we can all live our lives in a more human and in a better or sustainable and happier way. True calmness, true balance, true equanimity. And I think you know no better person to to talk to life experiences in life and you know how we can all live our best life than the world's deepest man william truebridge it's a it's an absolute privilege to be speaking with you man so thanks so much for coming on no thank you Stephen, for inviting me on great so i think i'd like to start with you know just a metaphor for exploring who you are as a person right in your 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 journey and only a couple of days ago, I was working with a team and I just done with, done this exercise with the team at the start just to get them connected within themselves, but connecting to each other. And I felt, you know, I, you know, on the journey home, I kind of said, you know, I was looking forward to the podcast. And I said, geez, I'd love to ask William that. So here it is, right? So so the metaphor is Triple H, highlight, hero, hardship. Right? And even if you want to start with highlight, hardship, hero. So what that what it is really is, look, if you, as you reflect on your life, William, and for us to really get a sense to know you, it's kind of looking back in, to your journey. 
and looking at it from through the lens of what's been kind of a really highlight in your life that stands out more than anything else. You know, when your gut looks at, you know, a real peak experience in your life, what's something that stands out, I suppose, and then the, the you know, the hardship and the hero comes comes after that. But even just starting with the highlight, what comes up, what, what, what's something that comes in there when I, say, when I ask you that question? Well, the, the obvious kind of knee-jerk answer would be um, kind of the, the showreel of whatever word records um, that I've set or deep dives uh, that I've accomplished. And yeah, those are definitely the highlights in terms of kind of the endorphins and the experience. But when I look back on on kind of my career, my life, um, it's not those moments necessarily that I'm most fond of, that I look mm-hmm. back on with the most kind of gratitude or... Um, yeah, because what I've realized is that it is in the the hardships that we actually kind of make the most progress and define ourselves um, through those challenges. And so those moments in those years when it's been really tough, I kind of look back on those as more of the highlights because that's when I've kind of Fair point. I've done the work and 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 proved myself. So I guess they kind of merge. Um, there's no real the hardships yeah. are, are highlights yeah. and and um, and the highlights themselves are highlights. I guess that's a very interesting perspective, William. Thanks for sharing. So if I if I was to kind of just drop down a level of detail on it and kind of look at it, okay, could you give an example of something that stands out where I suppose it was. It was really hard for you, you know. It's something that you struggled with, maybe, or that you really had to dig deep to to, to mm. overcome. And obviously, I'll come out to the side, you know, a better version of yourself. Is there some? Is there an example that you could share that would be kind of a bit of context? Yeah, multiple different yeah. Um, cases. One of the earliest, um, early on in my career, before I was um, anyone in freediving, when I was completely unknown, and I um, trained really hard and and got to a level where I felt like I was capable of attempting a world record. And I was actually reaching those depths, world record depths in training. Yeah. This is going back all the way to 2006. Um, and I traveled to Egypt, to the Red Sea, to yeah. have a shot at this uh, world record. And the first time I had just actually been exposed to ciguatero, which is a neurotoxin in tropical fish through eating tropical, uh, the wrong species oh, of tropical fish. Yeah, yeah. And that I kind of recovered from it, but full recovery takes months. Um, so I hadn't fully come back to full form and, and failed mostly for that reason. Then in the second side, so I, I kind of regrouped, spent a few months training back in Italy. Yeah. And then um, when I felt ready, went back to the Red Sea to have another crack at it um, in September. And this time got some kind of funky um condition from um from egypt and like my blood pressure was super low and i lost my sense of taste and that it never actually came back so something went wrong and again um, your taste never came back no um it's 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 just a gustia which means that the the taste in the tongue is lost um so our tongue actually only tastes salt sour sweet and bitter all the flavors you taste with your nose when you're eating. If you pinch your nose, you don't taste chocolate or banana or strawberry. Um, <laughs> so, so, so I lost this, the, the the tongue function, which is neither here nor there. I, I can't taste something sweet or, or salty, but it doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, that that record attempt failed as well. So there was two um, big failures in that year, 
And if I put myself in the shoes of how I was after that second attempt went south, you know, I was kind of thinking to myself, will I ever, um, maybe I'm just not cracked up to be a world record breaker. Maybe I'll never get it. Um, I'm running out of money. Um, probably yeah. not going to have another opportunity. All this kind of um, self-talk. And so to kind of go back to the drawing board and um, continue training and, and double my training and, and really put everything into the next record attempt, that whole process um super hard um but i look back on it like as a better kind of pathway than if i had just gone out there and and uh, aced my first mm. world record attempt yeah that's a good point so you kind of use that that hardship as fuel for to come back stronger and to, to understand more and not take it for granted i'd imagine and not be complacent mm. every time you come yeah. to the come to the competition yeah. and so there's huge learnings there right this wasn't yeah I, just to stay there a moment like because there was there was probably a choice point where there was a choice to be made around do i you know face this or do i fall you know um and you faced it and obviously came mm. back as you can see 100 times stronger over time but what would you say to those people that are at that choice point that might be looking at folding might be looking at giving up on a dream or something that really means something to them because of these setbacks. Yeah, to I mean, to evaluate if it is something that you really, um, really want. If you're really passionate about it, um, if not, then maybe you need to let it go. But if you if you feel that hunger just as strong, don't give up on it. Um, keep on because the reward will be magnified by the number of times you've had to kind of pick yourself off the yeah, floor yeah. and and go back to it. Yeah. So that the hunger piece, just quick again in question on the hunger. What about if people are struggling to understand if they do have the hunger or not, or they might have it, or is that you know where they're caught in their mind of a loop. Right. So they don't have that mental clarity because of what's happened. Maybe they're doubting themselves and the lack of confidence is probably all still letting them know that this isn't what they want or so so I just I hear what you're saying, but I, I, I wonder is there um how would they navigate through uncertainty around the hunger given what has happened? Yeah, good question. Like, and I, it's, it's something that I I've, I've feel like I see often in younger generations. Um, I'm not sure why it is or, um, or what the best kind of solution to it is, but I, I do sometimes see kind of an indecision or a lack of clarity about um about someone's own kind of journey or, or passion like mm. what they really want to apply themselves to uh and so i would suggest to people that like even if you're not sure if this is the thing for you what you're doing right now is the thing for you if there isn't an alternative something that presents itself as better then throw yourself into this for now um yeah. Yeah. it's better than better than doing nothing right um mm. and you will yeah, you, even if eventually you end up dropping it in favor of something else, you will have built up skills of resilience and determination and discipline, most importantly, which yeah. you will then be able to apply to that that new thing. So the time won't be lost. There's no such thing as lost um, application, as lost kind of work and and um, yeah. and uh, training, whatever it is. So uh, I'd say 
you know, apply yourself um, and you can constantly evaluate and say, okay, is there something else that I feel like I should be doing instead? If so, jump ship, um, but whatever it is, um, give it all you've got. Yeah, it's a great point. So a lot of stuff there, right? And we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that, but I'm interested in the last aspect of the Triple H, which is hero. As you mm-hmm. look at your life, who's somebody that's been a real hero to you in your journey that has really helped you yeah, and the, role modeled? Yeah. Um, the obvious one, especially since I'm um, talking of an Irishman, is is my friend Stephen Keaton, who mm. lost his life as a as a hero and was um, very beautifully portrayed in the Netflix documentary Deepest Breath that came out this yeah. year. Which brilliant, um, brilliant, yeah, very popular, I think. And he he was a consummate hero. I mean, we knew that even before he gave his life to save someone else, uh, because. He was dedicated and selfless to his role of safety freediver, um, not just on that occasion, but on many other occasions before. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful that his life was celebrated in the, in the way it was, um, because often those people who are kind of behind the scenes um, as as team members or um what have you don't kind of stand on the podium and get the medals but mm. they're just as much heroes as as the ones who are actually doing the performing yeah that 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 documentary was um it was we said before we came on it was really emotional wasn't it you know kind of it mm. you know re, re, it really i suppose to be fair to the directing team behind the documentary but it really gave you a sense of who the people were who Stephen was and the people that were in the, the documentary and around Stephen and the journey they've been on. And I suppose the culture and freediving as well and the tribe that that you have, right? It's kind of shines a light on that mm. in a way that I, I, you know, I would have never have known. So I think it's, um, it, was, it was special, but it was emotional. I, I found myself, you know, at the end kind of um, struggling a little bit, you know, feeling connected to, mm-hmm. to Stephen and, and his journey. And I've, I've, I'm looking, I'm Irish. Maybe there was something there, but... It was um yeah, it was it was brilliant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really powerful, and um, it, it's not kind of the the film wasn't an overstatement about who Stephen was. He really was uh, embodied everything that was portrayed in that in that film. I mean, most of it is is footage of him talking to the camera, so you really do see um, how he was. But uh, he was loved in the community and and um, seen as yeah a hero um, even yeah. before he gave his life like that. Yeah, and he was in vertical blue. I think one of the clips in there was when he was in vertical blue, and he he was just talking to the to everybody about, "Look, we're here, we're here for you." And his, you can see the presence he had, or the the, the respect he had, you know, and his ability to mm-hmm. communicate and bring an element to safety, mm-hmm. reduce anxiety with people, you know, just because he was there. So I think that's you know ho- highlighting what you're saying as well, you know. So so that was that was a great documentary. So everybody that hasn't watched it, definitely do. One, yeah, the, the culture. It's going to explain. T- tell us. Because it kind of shines a light on the culture a little bit, right? Of of freediving. How would you explain the culture within free freediving community? Yes, it's, it's a very um, strong kind of bonded cultural group in, in freediving, and it has to be because most of the time we are in these kind of far flung little islands or places and countries like Egypt or the Caribbean or Philippines or Bali, yeah. where you're pretty much by yourself um, and you're training and you're going deep and you have to rely 
100% on the people that you are training with. So often we are training and safetying each other with competitors, people who yeah. we are going to be competing against. So it's impossible to have kind of animosity or or um, negative rivalry in those circumstances um, because you literally would put your life in jeopardy if you can't trust the person that you are providing yeah. um, with. Yeah, that's interesting. Like that's a question I was going to share or ask uh, William. Is it's an individual? It's an individual sport, and obviously through the documentary, I saw it. There was there was more. It's not just um, like a golf or a, you know where it's very you're out there and you're competition with each other like you are like you are but it's not as competitive and there is a support for each other in in your in your journeys that's that's very unique i think how did that happen like i suppose is that because of the 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 risks that are there and the dependency on each other as safety divers and you know yeah it's 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 100 because of that i think um it's it's similar to a sport like climbing where you have to 100% trust the person who is belaying you or who is um, your partner on the on the cliff uh, because your life is in their hands like mm. um, day in, day out. And it's exactly the same in, in freediving. If we have a blackout, which is where you push it a little bit too far and you, your oxygen levels drop below the threshold for consciousness, that's going to happen towards the very end of your dive when you're approaching the surface. And if that happens and you're safe to you have a safety diver there, they'll just grab you, bring you to the surface, and as soon as you come to the surface, your face detects that you're above yeah. the water again, and you you come back, you come to. So it's a very benign, I mean, it's, we obviously want to avoid it, but it's benign, um, there's yeah. no repercussions or anything. You you wake up and within seconds you're laughing and, and normal. If you are by yourself, you're dead. Um, yeah, yeah. There's, there's absolutely no, <laughs> no way of surviving it. So it's you are 100% dependent on the safety diver. So it makes it a very communal thing at the same time as it's also completely independent and individual because the performance of the dive itself is 100% you. Like you're not um, getting helped by your team in any way to do the dive. You are alone down there. You you are yeah, reliant yeah. on your own force to come back up to the surface. So I feel like it's kind of 100% an individual sport, but it's also a hundred percent dependent on on the team and, and yeah. safety partners. That's amazing. Just for for people listening in, I suppose I don't want to go too far into what freediving is. And if I was to try and give it an example, if I was trying to explain it, and you correct me, right, rather than giving you you know handing it over to you and taking a shortcut, right? So simply, my understanding of it is it's it's how deep can you go on a single breath, and yeah. You, Simply that's, that's, that's it. Definitions that you can how get deep. Yeah. How deep can you go to the, in, within the down, down in the depth of the ocean and back on a, on, a, on a single bread? And obviously, there's different competitions with fins or fins and all of that. Maybe you might mm -hmm. share a channel later on that. But that's something really powerful, right? How deep can you go? You know, in in truly down down in the depths of the ocean on a single bread. That's I can imagine a lot of people would be really scared and frightened of that. Obviously, through preparation, you. And a desire and a love for the ocean, you know that mm. that's not how you see it. But yeah, and another Go thing ahead. that I I often another distinction I make is that it is really the only truly aquatic sport. Uh, it's the only a, a, a sport where you are completely immersed in the water. Every other yeah, yeah. sport 
takes place on the boundary between water and air. Like in swimming, you're moving across that boundary. You're taking advantage of the fact that your arms can travel faster than the air. So you're recovering your arms out of the water, et cetera. Um, synchronized swimming, everything that's important. Most of it so, happens about yeah, the surface. Boundary, yeah. Windsurfing, surfing, like all those sports are just on that that liminal yeah. boundary layer. Whereas freediving is the only one where you are immersed for the entire performance. So it is the purest measure of human aquatic capacity, human aquatic potential. I'm so excited about this yeah, conversation, man. <laughs> <laughs> because you you must know the ocean better than anyone, right? I mean, obviously. You're the top percentage. Like you must know the ocean. That, but... As well as a lot of like your experiences within the ocean, your amount of time you spent down there, the depths you've went. If somebody was to come to Earth and say, "Somebody explain what the ocean, what the ocean is, what it's all about," you probably would be the best one of the best people to talk to that, right? So if I was to ask you that question, like, explain the ocean, explain the beauty, the secrets, you know, the treasure of the ocean. Mm, mm. But words to that, like that's what I'm curious about. I mean, there's so many ways you can, you, directions you can go. It's it's seventy percent of our planet as a like um, a, the biomass, the the inhabitable kind of like environment of our planet. It's probably even more than that. It's the womb, the birthplace of life on our planet. It's the blood of the planet because we're all dependent mm -hmm. on on uh, what happens in the oceans. So we aren't the our planet is wrongly called Earth. It should be called water or, or or sea or something because yeah. that is the kind of defining <laughs> quality of of this planet more than anything else it's the happy um yeah and because yeah. we're we're terrestrial beings we we kind of save our life um on on ground on on um on the earth but we can become aquatic ourselves in the space of one lifetime we can return to the oceans and we can do so with remarkable um uh, with remarkable affinity uh so obviously not like dolphins or seals or, or whales that have evolved over the course of millions of years yeah, yeah. um but we have innate um reflexes that allow us to adapt to the water such as the mammalian dive reflex that slows down the heartbeat heartbeat um mm -hmm. pulls all the blood in your in the core of your body so that your muscles use less oxygen that uh, conserves it for yeah. the brain and the heart so there's these kind of uh, reflexes that occur that allow us to spend more time under the water holding our breath um to be more aquatic basically uh, and that's an incredible incredible function yeah. incredible um um skill that we have that's innate in all of us yeah no there is there is this like you know i think through evolution it's where we started, right? It's the ocean was the the birthplace, you know. And I think mm -hmm. that there's, yeah, I think we 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 have that still within us, you know. So as you mentioned, like you know, you, you could always like through time, you know, you come come full circle back around to that again, and that's to be respected as well, you know. That's to be respected. I think when even for myself, if I spend time in the ocean down the beach, and uh, you know, you you something's different when you when you when you go back home, you know, you feel you feel a little different uh, in a better way. Mm -hmm. Um, character explain, right? Bushism. Yeah. Yeah, there's a magnetism to our species. It's, it, it's why oceanfront property costs 10 times what it does yeah. in, in the country, why we all go to the seaside for holidays. Like just sitting next to a lake is so much rela more relaxing than sitting on the same kind of grassy patch in the middle of a meadow, for instance. Um, yeah. 
So what that is, I'm not sure, um, but there definitely is a quality to water that um, calms us and takes away, I find, the worries and thoughts about the past and the future. It's almost impossible when you jump into the water and go for a swim or play in the waves to kind of have those thoughts pop into your head about, uh, I've got that deadline coming up or yeah. uh, remember what she said last night. Um, it just doesn't happen. You just It brings you into the moment and focuses you there. So that's maybe part of what the the draw is. Um, yes, yeah, that's a great point. You, so I'm going to read a quote here from yourself, William, and I want to just explore it, right? So when I was a child, free diving was a way to bring up something from the bottom of the sea. We would swim down to retrieve a shiny stone, a shell, or a meal for the dinner table. Now at the other end of my career, I'm finally bringing to the surface a treasure that has taken a lifetime of free dives to find. Yeah, tell us more about that right. treasure. So those, that treasure, that, man. Those, those treasures are referring to the techniques um, that I was introduced to or found through free diving and through the oceans. Um, techniques specifically of... Um, like mental control and breathing, which in free diving allow me to affront uh, a dive, like a, a record attempt to dive 200 meters or more and do so with the right kind of um, starting state. Because if you are, I'm sure anyone can imagine, if you are kind of like fired up and you're like um, surging with adrenaline at the yeah. start of one of these dives, you chew through your oxygen reserves twice as quickly and yeah. then therefore you will black out early you have to go into it with kind of like a calm zen-like uh, mindset and and physical state but when it, it, it's easier said than done because when you know that you kind of have a world record attempt have this this um momentous dive to um to try and perform then just the anxiety and the stress around that performance gets your sympathetic nervous system yeah, yeah. it's the fight or flight reflex um so it gets your adrenaline and 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 that's uh, true for pre-competition right for a lot of i suppose every competition even if it's going for us you know a, a public speaking or a presentation down to playing in a championship game right so there's always that pre-competition anxiety that players and people have to mm -hmm. have to manage and always majority of the time it's that calmness that balanced state is where you optimally perform and and more exactly. so vital for your own for your own competition so in, in freediving it's, it's kind of like a test tube experiment in that to the nth degree because you know that there's this like feedback effect where the more stressed you are the more you're aware that you're stressed and that that is going to impact your your performance so it's going to increase the risk of something going wrong so yeah. that stresses you out more so that's the feedback loop oh yeah um, yep and to go down that rabbit hole just before you're about to attempt a, um, a dive to 100 meters or more is um, is insane. So you have to be able to control the mind and control the whole system because the, there's a feedback loop between the mind and the body. There's yep. um, neurons that from the from the body, from the breathing muscles that trigger um, different um, neurological states, yep. like trigger yep. that that fight or flight reflex so so you have to kind of hack into that system and be able to introduce a calmness um and kind of an equanimity 
in that situation. Not just then before the dive, but also during it when you start to get the urge to breathe. Because when you're down at, I don't know, 100 meters and you start coming back up and you feel your body is heavy, you're having to like fight to get back to the surface and already you're starting to feel this, yeah. this um, increase in carbon dioxide and the urge to breathe then the natural kind of human response is to, to panic and try and swim faster, which will yeah, yeah. use your oxygen quicker. Mm. And so you have to resist that and stay calm in that situation as well. Um, so literally from before the performance, right the way through it to the end, we are, have to be 100% in control over the mind and the body. Yeah. And the techniques during my career that I was kind of forced to learn uh, or to find in order to achieve this, those techniques fall over. They apply so well to any kind of stressor, to any anxiety that we face in our life, whether it's personal life mm. or business life. And so that's what I mean about the treasures. Like freediving showed me, or I, I was kind of forced to, to find these um, abilities to confront stress and anxiety in performance. Yeah. And now those, those tools can be used anywhere and everywhere and so i, I yeah. want to show other people how to do that yeah no and you got the mental 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 immune system platform and system mm. that you have that is a platform for you to do that mm. um and i might come back to that as we kind of get towards the end of the conversation because i want to share with the world where to find you and how to learn from you and grow from you right so this is excellent the can you tell can you talk to me about let's say in our pre-competition or maybe the night before right because i suppose that's when you know, the pressure is starting to really, you know, the challenge and the pressure is coming to its to its peak, I suppose. And it kind of, I think from my experience in competition, you know, the, the night before is when you really start to, okay, zone in. So, you know, you kind of really, mm-hmm. you have to kind of, you go to your own place. For me, I go to my own place and I find myself um, just getting ready mentally, even consciously, subconsciously. So tell us, could you tell me about your routine, let's say the night before competition and right up to it? you know, at a high level, just in terms of what you do and how you, um, how you prepare to get that canvas. Well, there's, sure. Yeah. The, 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 there's the stuff that I do for the free diet itself, like the physical stuff, that preparation, but in order to get that calmness that you talk about, um, the, the routine is actually something that, that is subconscious. And that's why it's called, I call that the mental immune system, because it has to, for it to be effective, it has to be something that works in the background. If if every yeah, time yeah. I feel like, oh my God, I've got to do this dive tomorrow, I'm getting stressed, I'm getting anxious. Okay, now let's employ that technique. Okay, I'm going to go and sit down and, and do this breathing method and, and focus on the chakra or whatever it is. If I have to do something, some kind of protocol every time, never going to work because yeah, you. you'll forget or in the heat of the moment, like the real crunch situations, you just don't remember. You're, you're so kind of fired up with the emotions that you just run with that. So it has to be something that's subconscious in the background, like our physical immune system. We don't tell our bodies to go and fight the virus in our throat or, or sinuses. Yeah. So the idea is that there's these techniques and then you program them into the subconscious mind so that if that takes over and everything becomes automatic as a response to any stress or anxiety. So if a negative thought pops into your head, your body and your mind have a natural reaction to that to calm things down again. 
Um, and so that is working in the background the night before and the day of. Um, 24-7, right? It's always there, William, like that. That I know when, these, when the pressure is mounting, that that it's subconscious has taken over more. But I'd imagine your everyday life, like it's not just a competition treasure, it's it's for life. And you explained that already. And I suppose I just wanted to point mm. out as well that I really appreciate you sharing that it's uh, subconscious because I feel that our world right now, a lot of people's programming and subconscious um, mind or activity is fear based and anxiety driven. Mm hmm. You know that mm, that's mm. mental health is is really a challenge for people, and I think if they really explore their subconscious, you know, I think that's where they can really positively impact on their mental health. You know, and this is obviously what are you what you're sharing? Absolutely, the I could um, go on for hours about the power of the subconscious mind. Like if you if you look at yeah. a, a mountain lake, right? You you look at it, all you see is the first kind of few centimeters of the the surface. Um, and that's our rational mind, and that's beautiful enough. But beneath that, there's this huge volume of um, of of kind of water where the light doesn't penetrate, so we don't can't see what's happening there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there's all these goings on and movements and currents that produce what's happening on the surface. Um, so the subconscious mind is behind every thought um, that we ha that we have. So tapping into that kind of acknowledging that power to begin with and then taking advantage of it empowers it the more faith the more confidence that you put into your subconscious mind the more that it will become stronger and more accurate and reward you for yeah. it basically um so so yeah I, I, it's not just kind of programming the subconscious but also um empowering it and, and taking advantage of it yeah training is huge for it to be i suppose subconscious it comes through consistent repetition and have a habit and training right is that fair to say william from your perspective it came subconscious for you because of sheer amount of um what you practice grows stronger right so your your practice was key for that so can you tell mm -hmm. me more about that like there's the I suppose the practice through free diving, but for you know outside of that, I would imagine that you you spend you give yourself space you give yourself space to practice even not outside of the water as well, which is probably more relative to to the listeners around what they can do to get that pre mm -hmm. pre-programming and subconscious calmness. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, you've hit the nail on the head because in my I mean it's it's the same as any sport. You if you're a tennis player or um, a golfer, you are basically programming this movement into your subconscious mind um so that you, you as a tennis player you don't have a, have a have time to re to think about what shot to play it has to be a reaction it has to be a subconscious reaction so we we program these movement sequences what have you and the same with with, with free diving in training i'm doing countless repetitions of apneas which are breath holds um, most yeah. of the time on empty lungs so i exhale all my day and then hold my breath like that and in each of those i'm pushing myself to the point where i get a very strong urge to breathe and then i continue into that as long as i can not just being in that state but trying to be as relaxed as possible so trying to kind of uh, maintain I, I do these just sitting on a mat, so I'm just trying to maintain absolute kind of calmness and relaxation despite this sense of suffocation or urge to breathe, whatever you want yeah. to call it, that is 
um, rising to a magnitude that we almost never experience unless we're like on the verge of drowning. And so in each of those cases, I'm programming the subconscious mind to react to adversity or to react to kind of a this strong sensation with equanimity and, and calmness. And that's not to say that anyone who wants to be able to kind of program a mental immune system or, or take control over stress and anxiety needs to go through this process. No, you don't. You, you just need to tackle the challenges that you have, but tackle the small ones. So program the subconscious, program your response to stress and anxiety through working on those small challenges. Um, and yeah. the more that you build up a volume of being able to stay calm and tranquil and, and serene in these small kind of stressful situations, not necessarily the big ones, but if you build out that, that basal volume, that's when you are programming the subconscious yeah. system. Yeah, so I hear you around every day there's opportunities to be calm or be a different state. And is in those moments mm -hmm. is to is to bring that calmness. So sort exactly. of exactly could, yeah. could be like standing in line at Starbucks when the guy in front of you is, to, is taking like too long to order their <laughs> their um their soy latte or whatever it is. Yeah, or and like, he skipped your queue as well, and he skipped you in the queue too. So add that in, add that layer in. Yeah. Yeah. So those those small frustrations are you have to see those as opportunities um to develop this capacity to be in control of your internal state um and then when you see that that, that you can't have a bad day because every kind of so-called bad day is just an opportunity to practice your um control over your inner yeah. state and i just stay here for a moment william so so how right i know we mentioned the brown like you're you're i'm kind of thinking about an actual practical takeaway for for me i suppose for the listeners that let's say if we have to do this one thing every day uh, I noticed there's moments, right? Uh, you know, there's probably two aspects to it when you're home where you can train and obviously in a moment when you're in that queue in Starbucks, is there, is there a breath hold or a breathing technique or something that you can have in your conscious mind that you can practice this was and all of a sudden through experience it'll go subconscious. It's not sneezing. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's the tool, yeah. Sneeze. No, no, it's not. Um, <laughs> Yes, there is. There, um, so we all have this capacity to activate the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the calming nervous system. It's called yeah. rest and digest, I think, also. But it's basically the opposite of the activated sympathetic, sympathetic, yeah. sympathetic nervous system. We all have the, the ability to activate that using the breath. The breath is kind of like a reverse engineer for that state. Um, and it's not a difficult breath. You don't need to kind of do some funky um, movement or anything. It's some, it's actually the way that we breathe as children, as very young children. Um, we know all about that, William, now with the two kids, right? Yeah. The yeah, no, two and a four-year-old. Like it's when they're, they're asleep and, and marvel at just how, like, perfect their breathing patterns are. Uh, why does it change? We learn that. Yeah, why does it change? Yeah. I don't know that there's theories about like we kind of develop in our lives all these kind of insecurities and and like an insecurity finds like its its way into the body as kind of like a knot or a tension um, mm. and it's true that like if we are stressed or fearful the body's natural reaction to that is to um, is to breathe Arbor. in the upper part of the chest yeah. which activates the sympathetic nervous system in the past. That was that was good 
because we needed that adrenaline. Most of the time, if we were scared, it was for good reason, because there was a saber-toothed tiger coming down the path yep. and we had to be able to run away or fight it real quick. Um, nowadays, if you're in line at Starbucks, you don't need to run or, or fight the guy in front of you. You're not going to um, have a good time if you do. So it, those tools don't have their place in modern society in, in almost all cases. And we yeah. need to be able to override them. And so the breath is the most effective way to override that kind of, I wouldn't say it's a faulty system, but it's like an outdated Oh, there is, yeah. Evolutionary system for, for survival, mm. I suppose, whereas that's not relevant now, you know, so it's kind of what's the most, and it's, it's, a, it's a driver for a lot of anxiety because that trigger, that sympathetic system could be triggered just through someone's body language, what someone said, a thought, the past, you mentioned mm -hmm. in the future. So all of that, so it doesn't serve you or it doesn't serve humanity to be in that loop. So breathing exactly. is a huge, exactly. a huge platform to... Yeah. To, to gain that kind of balance back, right? And so tell me, William, I probably hope, I think you're going there, right? But so what's, um? so there's, there's so many different types of box breeding and there's all that kind of stuff, I know, uh, which is a really powerful tool. But what's what's one that you would like for us to take on or you want to share? Well, as far as the breath goes, there it really is only one. Um, there's different types of breathing which will have their place, sure, but the most effective one is nasal diaphragmatic breathing. Um, there's a few other features as well that I go into in the mental immune system about the the rhythm that you can have with it. Um, yeah. But if you are breathing nasally and exclusively into the diaphragm, then you you can't go wrong. Uh, yeah. That will bring you back on track. Um, so in those moments when um you kind of feel panicky you feel anxious you feel stressed you feel depressed just reminding yourself okay bring my breathing back into my belly with the diaphragm yeah. um and it, it helps to this different exercises i go through to have an awareness of your diaphragm muscle how it works um how to potentiate it um but yeah the 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 guts of it is just nasal diaphragmatic breathing. And that's yeah. half the picture. That's the physical side that activates the sympathetic nervous system. But it's not by itself enough for the major, major stresses. And that's when you need to bring in the mental techniques, um, something that I yeah. call observer mind, uh, which is a form of mindfulness, I guess. And then other techniques as well, such as scheduling thoughts and thought quality control, different things like that, like different tools. Uh, but the main one is is this observer mind. And the two of those together, if you are breathing nasally and diaphragmatically and using observer mind, then it doesn't matter what's happening to you, um, you can yeah. come through it. So, you know, just observer mind is something that mm -hmm. you're kind of, it kind of speaks for itself and that your thoughts will, you know, 60,000 thoughts a day, you know, whatever that figure is. It's a lot. Mm. So it's to be not to get carried away with those thoughts, is it to be consciously observing and separate and not non attachment to thoughts. Is that kind of the process around observer mind? You know, it's, part, the... it's part of it. It's part of it. But it's um it goes deeper than that. And it's again it's something that was revealed to me through freediving, uh, because freediving puts you in this intimate kind of um relation to your own 
consciousness. Um, yeah. And it does that by taking away most of the input, most of the data that's coming into the, the conscious mind. Yeah. Um, so right now, like I'm looking at the screen, I'm getting all the, the light that's coming into my eyes, that's data, I'm hearing the audio, um, the sensations about um, the, the my weight on the chair, um, the air moving around me, all this information that's coming in. When we dive and go under the water, there's very little light at depth. There's no sound, there's no smell or taste. Um, there's no sense of gravity. There's no kind of weight of your body on any particular point. Everything is uniform around you, just suspended. Um, yeah. And so you, your body, your sensation of having a body kind of slips away because the sensation coming into the, the skin, your body is, yeah. is the same everywhere. Um, so you almost forget that you have a body. Um, at the same time, we talked about how the water takes away your thoughts of the past or the future. Um, so there's very little kind of like, um, there's not much happening in your in your mind. And the deeper that you go, the more that that is kind of enhanced. And the last thing is that when you hold your breath, you take away this last kind of remnant of, um, we don't really realize it, but our breath is like a metronome for the passing of time. Uh, we can't, we don't look at our watches all the time. We can't hear our heartbeat most of the time, but we're always aware of our breath. It's always following us this natural rhythm yeah. and it speeds up when, when time's going quicker, when things are busy, when it slows down, when we're relaxed. So yeah, our breath is this kind of like natural measure of the time passing. And when you hold your breath, it's almost as if time stops. And yeah. so underwater, yeah you've lost your body, you've lost all the senses, you've lost your thoughts, and you've also, to a certain extent, lost the kind of concept of time. And what that does is it strips away everything, all the the contents of consciousness, and leaves you just with the consciousness itself. The, the, the way I describe it is like a, a movie camera filming in the darkness. Like the, the camera is still filming, but there's no contents to it. And so it, maybe the camera becomes aware of itself in the same way that that in a deep dive, I kind of become aware of just being consciousness and nothing else. Yeah. And at the end of the day, that is all who we are. Like we are not our thoughts. We're not our bodies. We're not um, our memories or anything else. We are just this um, observer, this consciousness that is taking on um, all this, this data. And that includes our thoughts and our emotions. Like we don't choose, we're not in control of our thoughts. Um, unfortunately, there is no th such thing as free will. And that has been <laughs> proven scientifically uh, now. Um, and that is kind of in some ways disempowering and in some ways also really um, empowering, but without going into that too much, um, there's, yeah, we're, we're not choosing our thoughts. We're not, we're not the ones thinking them. We're just the ones who are observing them in the same way that you're kind of observing or hearing my voice. I'm also hearing the thoughts in my head in exactly the same way. They're coming to yeah. me. Um, and when you realize that part of why it's empowering is that it means that 
those negative thoughts that you get, um, like I'm not good at this, uh, I suck at life, um, never going to be successful, mm. all those thoughts, you can just see those as contents to your consciousness, just as uh, the same as as if someone else was saying them, or as if you're reading them. Like it's it's not you, you don't need to identify with, with that as yourself. You're right, really. This is pretty so. Yeah. So the idea is to kind of, um, when you're in this observer mind state, you're you're not in the river kind of floundering away, getting carried along by this tide of of thoughts, whether they're negative or positive. You're now on the riverbank watching everything go past and you're identifying with the point, the speck of consciousness, um, which is in the end all that we truly are. No, how do we unpack all of that? <laughs> <laughs> there was so much in there, right? So it, that was yeah, pretty, um, a pretty it, outstanding share, you know. Maybe it needs to be experienced um, in order to be really appreciated, uh, but I don't think that you, I don't think you need to free dive to experience that. I think you can you can arrive at that probably through meditation for sure, but also just through kind of self reflection. Um, just noticing, and this is one of the exercises that I give with the mental immune system, noticing your thoughts and noticing where they come from and noticing that you didn't choose to have that thought um, in the same way with emotions, just noticing that it's it's data, it's contents to your consciousness in the same yeah. way as if I like, um, one of the examples I use is if I, if I walk past a, a coffee table and I kick the leg of the table and it hurts, and I look down at my foot and there's nothing wrong with the foot that, that's not broken or anything. Um, so I can turn off that pain because there's there's no there's a purpose to it. Even if there was there was something wrong, you can still just see that pain as a sensation and sensations is just data to your consciousness. Like if you um, scream and panic and 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 get bent out of shape over it. That is your reaction to the pain, um, mm, and the pain yeah. itself is just data. And so you yeah. you are in control of your reaction over it. Yeah, no, it's a great point. Interesting around the thoughts. Uh, you know, Mike, Michael Gervais, you know, the psychologist in America, leading psychologist in from the US. You know, the Stratus Stratus Project where Felix. Bone, I don't know, I'm not going to pronounce second name drop from uh, the Stratus. Uh-huh. He was a psychologist for that. But he referenced that we can control four things, right? And he says initially our thoughts, action, thoughts, effort, attitude, and actions are the four things that we can control. So, so he's a different perspective on thoughts. So I'm curious about, you know, he, his point is that obviously our thoughts, you know, we're caught in a kind of a fear loop where we feed our thoughts, but we kind of, we've a, we a thought pattern of, okay, I'm not good enough or, I don't, I'm not worried enough of, you know, I'm going, say I'm going to do a presentation and I, I might I might make a, a bad, I might not speak clearly or I might, something thought, a thought comes in, right? But that thought, when you attach to it, I suppose, means more likely that it's going to happen. So the thought in the fair loop would dictate that, you know, the actual um, thought makes you feel a certain um, negative you know, emotion, which would, which would dictate kind of, you know, a weak body language and ultimately then a poor action or a weak or suboptimal action. And when it comes back around to that thought, it's actually a stronger thought that's that has more mm-hmm. weight because your action is aligned to it. Likewise, in, in the in the positive or the courage thoughts. 
So he's he speaks to that kind of courage loop, fear loop, and your ability to control thoughts mm. through through courage, you know, given courage, you know, through action and it's circling back and that thought is more stronger again. So I suppose I, I wouldn't say it's one or the other, but I'm curious about what your sense is of that and how that fit, fits in with the the perspective of we aren't in control of our thoughts. Maybe it's the same thing. Yeah, this, I mean that is the that that's the kind of limbic response um, that we need to snap out of because it I call it the death spiral where you have these negative thoughts and they have a physical effect on the body and that physical effect creates an outcome or or changes something which feeds the the negative thoughts and stokes that that fire and so mm. down and you go round and round but down into the spiral yeah good point so too. we ha- we have to to snap out not snap out of that but kind of hack out of that and create a, a upwards reinforcing spiral um and do so by this kind of double pronged approach one is um one method is, is the breathing um in order to stimulate kind of like a calmness and so you get back in control of your body and the other method is uh, is the mental control of just realizing that those negative thoughts aren't you. Uh, it's just data, and you can choose whether to pay attention to them or not, or just to let them slide by and look for yeah. the next thought. Those kind of techniques. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's a it's a struggle, and it's not one that you kind of uh, win once and win for all time. Like you you often find yourself kind of straight back in that spiral again like oh shit i thought i'd solve this but <laughs> you've, got to, you've got to hack your way out of it again yeah. um, but each time you do so you you gain more strength and, and power in that um it gets easier uh but um that is the only kind of long-term solution that i know so your kind of your your process in the mental immune system is to through breathing and observing to come out of that spiral is it? Is mm-hmm. there any sort of just a true kind of um, typical psychology and positive psychology ultimately is to come out of that spiral via giving a positive thought reinforcement opposite to the to the negative thought? You know, is is that mm-hmm. what's your thought? What, what's your perspective? What, what, what's your um, instinct on that? It's a, it's a good technique, and there are many like that. Um, so I don't discount all of those kind of techniques. I can't remember the exact. Um, term that that defines them the idea with the immune system is that as i said before it has to be in order to allow you to function to keep on functioning in this situation um, whether it's stressful or anxiety inducing it has to be something that's in the background being um, put in place by the subconscious mind so it's like we script we we script the subconscious mind with this protocol that we want to follow. And then when um, our body or our mind notices that we're stressed or anxious, then it puts that in place and we keep on doing what we were doing. So if you're in a business meeting, um, then, and you need to, it's kind of like a tense situation, or if you're public speaking and you need to focus on what you're saying, you can't also be coming up with, Kind of positive thoughts to replace the negative ones right um yeah, you have yeah. to 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 be in that moment focus on what you're doing exactly. and so the yeah. mental immune system allows you to do that because it again it, it operates in the background um so that's why i see it as the only enduring solution um because it's subconscious because it's background and allows you to um 
to to function to perform better which is which is critical uh, it doesn't have to yeah. necessarily be a business thing it could be um i don't know like a a difficult conversation with a spouse an yeah. argument that you're having um like you need to be in yeah. control of your state um but you also need to be thinking about what to say and, and everything else so that that um the two yeah can't be kind of like competing for your yeah it's your so it's, it's for everything right it's like the best way to live the most optimal way to experience life is to be present and anchored in the moment and i think that's true whether it's a performance or every you know whether it's on your own you know walking down the road so it's, it's just that's the desired state to live and i think in that place then is where you can tap into your inner wisdom and your inner you know tap into something bigger than yourself right and i suppose that's where thoughts just come that are really the right ones are you know actions and behaviors and instinct and gut just is really activated i suppose in that place where it's it's anchored in the present moment i think and what you're sharing is process or a way about giving yourself the best chance mm. to be there and you do that mm. and you have to do that in your in your competition otherwise mm. Mm. it's it's life and death ultimately for you william you know mm-hmm. and yeah. yeah in the present moment but also calm like serene um in that present moment the word i always come back to is equanimity because to me it is the best kind of um reading of that state like you you could be in a difficult adverse situation but you're able to retain your inner calmness your serenity in that situation you're not yeah. affected by it that's equanimity yeah brilliant you have been in pretty cool situations william right down at depths of over 100 meters in the ocean what's it like like what's the i know you mentioned that it's just the darkness and it's just like a speck kind of it, like that must be is that addictive William like you kind of that experience of being down there you, you call to go there you kind of is it you kind of how long could you go without being down there you know can you tell me about <laughs> that yeah there's definitely something that that draws you back to the depths to the oceans and I do feel when I'm away from it for a long period um it does weigh on me I guess how long um, what's the longest you've been away from it, William how long have you there been? was a period around the, the birth of my second child when I had to go back to uh we, we went to New Zealand for, uh for the birth of both of them and it was during COVID uh so it took me kind of a month month of quarantine to get into New Zealand and then when we New Zealand had been free of COVID the whole time and then as soon as I arrived back cases started to to burst out and the whole country yeah. was in lockdown for four or five months so I think there was a period of like six or six months or so total when I wasn't able to go in the sea um that's probably the longest in my life I guess how did you manage that I mean I had good things I had my family and I had a new son and um many other kind of beautiful experiences so um it's not <laughs> on the scale of things it's not like um I I was kind of like deprived of of anything that was necessary for my existence. And I could yeah, yeah. cool. And you've you've got two beautiful kids. Yeah, mm. congratulations. Thank you. So, Thank you. did that change or shift? Like, it's a day. Like, I don't know what your thoughts are, but from an outside perspective, looking in, it seems like one of the most dangerous sports to do in the world. 
and um, mm-hmm. gets that is, that yeah. Do you, do you, would you disagree or agree? <laughs> I can think of more dangerous activities. Um, it gets a bad rep, um, partly because people misunderstand it. I think in competitions there has only been a single death in competitions in freediving. Um, in training, there's been more, but even in training, not so many. Most of the deaths that happen in freediving are spear fishermen, uh, especially when they they dive by themselves. Uh, so if you if you take out all the cases of people who were off doing something by themselves, there's not actually that many incidents. Um, so yeah, compared to base jumping or, or other extreme yeah, sports, I'd say it's, it's just, yeah. And it, it has become a father. Has it shifted your mindset around taking risk, or you know you still you still feel it's pretty keep going. No, nothing changed in your um, attempt to break records and do what you do. It, no, it did. Um, it definitely made me less risk averse. But interestingly, I noted that, like, uh, in in freediving, not really that much train changed in the way that I trained and dived. Yeah. But like in the way that I drive a car, <laughs> 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 if, if my feelings oh, yeah. about like getting on a scooter in the in the philippines and or or bali yeah. and driving down the road like that um that changed remarkably so that kind of yeah. showed me that um yeah maybe freediving either i'm just dumb and i'm not seeing the risk um or maybe it actually really isn't that dangerous compared to these other kind of day-to-day activities that we that we do uh but there was one occasion when I had a, and this is since the birth of my first child, I had a freak accident in 2020. And that um, changed my perspective quite a bit because I was very, very lucky to survive that. Um, it was a, it was basically a, a danger we didn't even know existed in freediving that we'd never kind of like yeah. revealed before, I guess. Um, and this dive that I did revealed that danger. Um, and because we weren't providing for it, um, it became a very a near death situation. Like I was very lucky to survive. And what happened, William? Is is it okay to share about what happened or what did, what it was? Yeah, yeah. And in in short, um, I was coming out from a very. It was a dive that was two meters deeper than the current world record in free immersion, where you're allowed to pull yourself up on the line. Um, so you use the line to pull yourself. Yeah, up yeah, 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 yeah. And I'd done a dive like just one meter shallow a, a few days before, and it was super clean and easy, and and everything was fine. I'd been very kind of like incremental and conservative in the way that I was improving that year because I had heaps of time. It was COVID, lockdown, and Bahamas, and so didn't really um, have to 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 hurry. And uh, so I, I was more than ready for this this dive. It should have been maybe not as easy as the one before but still like worst case scenario i get to the surface and and black yeah. out there kind of thing on this dive i blacked out 42 meters below the surface so we ruled out low oxygen because there's no chance that i could have been running out of oxygen at that day it's most likely that it was due to a um uh, an overly narcotic effect of carbon dioxide um which we were aware of, but we weren't aware could lead to um, a blackout in these dives. 
but that's we we don't have confirmation but that's the most likely explanation uh and it meant that i was below the depth of my safety diver who comes to 30 meters so he came yeah. to 30 didn't see me went back to the surface um and i drifted down to 76 meters before we have this kind of backup system where if if you don't come up um we have a counter ballast a counterweight on the back side of the platform that can be dropped at very heavy weight and that pulls yeah. up the entire line and we're clipped onto that line with a running carabiner so eventually the plate at the bottom of the rope will catch up to you um and so it caught up to me when i yeah. drifted down to 76 meters and then bring it to the surface but by that point i'd been under the water for uh, an additional like two or three minutes um and so yeah that they were able to resuscitate me uh then i had dcs which is um decompression sickness it's like due to being at depth too long and coming up yeah. too quickly so i was looking at uh, i when i came to my came back to consciousness i was kind of mostly paralyzed like i couldn't use my legs properly or my arms um and i realized that i was going to be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life if i didn't do something about it quickly and so i grabbed the oxygen that we have and went back down to um to 15 or 20 meters which is the the way to to overcome dcs to press there's basically like bubbles if you imagine like you shake up a coke bottle yeah open the, the lid everything like gets fizzy and explodes um that's happening in your bloodstream so if you bring that coke bottle underwater those bubbles get squashed go back into solution and that's what you want to do with your blood um so compress the bubbles and then they get reabsorbed by the blood off gas to with the breathing um come up and so i was able to luckily um avoid that as well by quickly doing um this this decompression dive so yeah no no long-term effects or anything uh, and i was extremely extremely lucky to um have a good safety team who were able to mm. to think quickly and and um save my life um that's that's um a powerful story william and i'm just i'm visualizing that you know i'm, I'm kind of observing i'm trying to kind of like i'm, I'm picturing <laughs> you know the process and you 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 kind of you know your david coming back up and you've you know going back down 30 40 meters and and then coming up again and then having to go back in, you know, all, all of these critical things that are happening, you know, at that point in time. So I think you must look back with, with a sense of gratitude and and um, take a lot of learnings from that, I'd imagine. Mm -hmm. um, One in. thing it showed me um, is that is that the, the, like death is really nothing that happens to us. Um like the, the moment because there was just i mean I, I don't think i was technically or biologically dead in any sense of the word but there was just nothingness between the moment when um whenever i passed out during the dive and when i came to and if it had been worse and i hadn't hadn't come back that nothingness would have just extended to infinity and so that's what i realized about death is it's just it's a lack of absolutely everything we kind of 
we assume that I think we in the back of our minds we assume that there's some part of us that kind of endures or there's something there's nothing there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Death is something that happens to the people that you leave behind. And so that's why I realized like it wasn't going to be an experience that I was going to have. It was going to be an experience for my family and for everyone else. Um, so yeah, it kind of gave me more, um, maybe think more responsibly, I guess, about what would happen if um, mm. if I did pass away, if something happened to me. And is that William like that that like that's whether you want to call it a traumatic experience or not? But it's it's kind of. I'm just kind of thinking of you and the next dive you take. Do you do you kind of before you go into that water? Does that stick with you around to hope this doesn't happen again, or is there some trauma mm. that you're carrying forward? Like because I'd imagine that must be challenging, you know, to have that responsibility of look, you know, how do you how do you mitigate against it? Like, and you completely, mm. you know, in a position. Well, the, yeah. the first step was to to make sure that we did mitigate so that if this did happen again, it would be benign. Like it would be be a kind of just a, an easy. Um, an easier sense to the surface. So I had to have more safety divers and have those positioned at deeper depths. And so I went back to using scuba safety divers um, yeah. at those critical depths. So once once we put that in place, then I felt more confident about starting to increment back up to those similar depths. But yeah, still when I started to approach that depth again, it was in the back of my mind, like, is this going to happen again? Like, I, I don't mm. know exactly what the cause is. Um, so there's a chance. Um, I know that if it does happen again, that it's not going to be like the last time, it's not going to be as serious, but I still don't want that to happen. So, um, yeah, there was there was definitely a psychological component to it that complicated things and, and made it more challenging. Um, but those challenges are kind of what we're there for. Yeah. <laughs> one last question. I suppose before we wrap up, I had a couple of questions. And I suppose one last question that I'm curious about before I kind of look to explore how we can learn more from you is what, what in your real perspective makes a great father? Mm. I'm learning. I'm learning as I go. I don't know if I know the answer to that question. But I, what I do know is that, what I, th I think I know is that it's equal parts kind of love, but also what's the best word? Sternness, strictness, discipline, like that kind of almost like a harshness that needs yeah. to be there in order to prepare them for the world. Because if you only obviously give them love and, and give them what they want, then you're doing them just as big a disservice as if you treat them horribly the whole time um yeah. and and our jobs isn't just to make them feel kind of comfortable and happy and cozy it's ultimately to prepare them for the world where they're not always going to be comfortable and happy and cozy yeah. so um yeah we need to kind of bear that in the back of our minds as well which is the most difficult part it's easy to love your kids right but it's yeah. harder to yeah. to um kind of Challenge them that the yeah. challenge them, yeah. That's the way. Be decisive. Be decisive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That the world isn't just about getting them what they want, etc., etc. And so, yeah. I feel that that that's where sometimes, um, kind of it's a generational thing. And that I can't remember who 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 said it best, who said it first, but um, uh, the quote that hard times make 
hard men, hard men make easy times, easy times make soft men. Yeah, I heard that. Soft yeah. men make hard times. Um, yeah. So we go through <laughs> these this, this cycles, right? Yeah. Um, and well, that's the natural way. But I think if you are cognizant of that, then as a father, you can even even if you if, if times are easy, you can make sure that your children are soft. Yeah, you got to get <laughs> the balance. It's the balance, like as you mentioned earlier. You know, yeah. being in a state of equanimity and balance with parenting and that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. what's you know in this, in that camp state, you know exactly what's the right thing to do and given the context because the child and toddlers that we're both facing at the moment will show at us different things at different times sometimes unexpl- un, you know can't be explained and uh, you gotta res- you gotta respond so that you know you give them the best mm-hmm. chance and you give yourself the best chance mm-hmm. as a parent, parent as well because giving them everything that they want over time is it's probably an easy thing right there <laughs> and then for you as a parent and for them but it won't be in the long run for you or for them so it's kind of Doing a hard ring. When they start wanting a a, a nice fancy car. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, Christmas is coming up as well. So you know that um there's a lot of presents that have been thrown around. But but William, the um what's next for you? What's what's the next uh what does next year look like and any any adventures under on, on the horizon? Yeah, next year um I want to compete more this year. I actually wasn't able to compete. Um the, or another kind of a debacle that we don't need to go into, but it's to do with athletes that were doping in the sport of freediving, and yeah. I was no one else they were was like addressing it. Sporting blue, right? Yeah, they were going to, um, and so we we ended up catching them, um, but it meant that I had to recuse myself as an athlete in order to head up that effort to to catch them. So, so yeah, I want to get back to competing and and to doing what I love, um, but I'm also um, kind of yeah, I'm, I'm really passionate about um, trying to divulge these techniques that we talked about to as many people as possible, in particular to people who um, who really need them, uh, people who are struggling with um, all kinds of pressure, whether it's yeah. stress, anxiety, or depression. Um, I feel like these, these methods really do work, and um, they're a tool that everyone especially in this age, um, like it's a, it's a pandemic at the moment of, of stress and anxiety. When you look at the figures compared to even 20 years ago, it's, yeah. it's like 10 X, but if you compare it to the fifties, it's like a hundred times as much, yeah. um, yeah. clinic, clinical, clinically diagnosed conditions of stress or anxiety disorder. So we really need to do something about that, about mental health. And it's not pills. It's not Xanax and Valium and this kind of stuff. In some cases they have their function, but most cases in short term we need yeah 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 we need a solution that comes from within that doesn't have side effects that's long lasting um and that creates kind of growth and confidence and yeah the mental immune system is my best attempt at that yeah cool so i'd put that in the show notes is there anything else that um we can we can like is there any other platforms where people can learn from you and grow from you i'm sure you have an instagram and you've got a website and um, mm-hmm. I know you've got a foundation as well that you're doing good work with, the True Blue Foundation, if you want to say a few words about that, because I think that's a powerful cause that, that you're um, you're leading as well. Yeah, so um, True Blue is, is the foundation that I use to kind of direct funds to the, the um, issues that I, I 
feel strongly about and I obviously can't fix everything or address everything. So I've chosen um, two main ones, which are plastic pollution in the oceans and the plight of the New Zealand hectares and Maui's dolphins, which are on the verge of extinction. Uh, so um, the True Blue Foundation is set up for um, as a means to, to fund those two issues. Then for anyone who's interested in freediving, I've just started a platform, which is like an online uh, platform where people can learn foundational knowledge and theory and exercises to do with freediving, but also all the way up to advanced stuff as well. Uh, so that's, uh, I think the link is fitwith.io. It's backslash will and tribute. But if you just go to my Instagram, yeah. my Facebook, then it's, the link's there as well. My Instagram is just will tribute. And uh, my website, williamtrubridge.com. Those are the main ones. William, you've, yeah, brilliant stuff. And I'll put all that in the show notes, right? And I'll be, I'm an advocate advocate for you and your work and your your um, your purpose. I know it's Friday the 17th and you have you had a good friend 10 years ago that unfortunately passed away, but his legacy lives on. And I, I'm, I'd love to give you a platform just to just to speak to him a little bit and, and, and who he was and the importance of him on your life and, and his legacy. Mm. Yeah, as I said, when we're offline, we we tend to kind of lose the best best of us in, in freediving to these incidents. Stephen Keenan was one, but before him, Nicholas Mavoli was an American freediver who was uh, like a kind of a living saint. He was just one of the most generous spirits that you've ever met. Mm. Uh, and he lost his life in a in competition. He's the only um, diver oh. so far who has lost his life in, in competition. Um, and so that was, yeah, 10 years to the day today um in the bahamas in dean's blue hole and obviously i was there when it happened and, and attempted to to um to bring him back um but um yeah we lost him so you know the generosity and his his kind character i think you you're an example of that as well william so, so some part of him lives on through you you know for sure so william any last to wrap up any last words for our listeners service I suppose to them any last thing that you'd like to share yeah I would say that if anyone is is kind of um has their interest tickled in freediving uh, by listening to to this podcast then um give yourself the opportunity to give it a go it doesn't necessarily need to be traveling to a tropical island to to actually dive this um most kind of big cities have some kind of a freediving group or instructor there who does lessons who will give you a chance to um to try freediving in a pool breath holds swimming underwater uh and it is an, an incredibly rewarding experience even just that kind of exercise in the pool but obviously if you can get depth even more so so if anyone is is interested um please do follow that interest uh, because who knows it could take you take you to some pretty deep places or the blue William <laughs> it was an absolute pleasure and time flew and I you know I've no doubt we'll, we'll speak again man so I just want to say thanks very much and keep 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 doing you keep being you keep keep your work going and the world needs it and I'm excited to see the impact of your work grow because I know it will so it was a pleasure man appreciate it Stephen thank you thank you for your time that's it guys I really got value from the conversation and you know I've no doubt that if you did listen you got value as well because 
the experiences that William has gained in life, you know, is, is something that is so powerful that, you know, he demands the respect in, in terms of performance, in terms of character, in terms of life, in terms of what it takes to, to be your best or what it takes to experience life in its fullest. You know, he's he's one of the, the foremost um, pioneers and to have him on the podcast to share a little bit about how we can all just be less stressed, more in balance, to live a little better, you know, we have to listen. And I think, you know, I, I hope I've done a good job of bringing some practical insights to you. So please listen, please share, please put in practice what you learned today. And I've got some really great guests coming up. So please stay tuned. You know, pe- people like Karen Reed, All Blacks Captain, and some other great minds that are, that are coming on the, and great characters that are coming on the show. So put in practice what you learned today. Check out William, check out his mental immune system and all that he does. And uh, yeah, let's keep the show on the road. So thanks everyone. Hope all is good with your lives and let's keep going.